0: Alright, we are good to go. We're in Matthew 15. We're going to pick up where we left off. Um, we are. This is going to be a long one today, so buckle in. Get ready. Get your notes ready. Warm up your pens, because um, it'll be a long one, and, and it's a long chapter. But also, I don't want to break this chapter up, because we really have... The first half of the chapter is about Jesus dealing with the spiritual nonsense of the Pharisees. And the second half of the chapter shows spiritual abundance. And you can see that at just a glance. It's a tale of two kingdoms. Um, so we start off with um, verse one. The scribes, then the scribes, and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, "Why don't your disciples transgress? Why do your dis- disciples transgress the tradition of the elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread? And he answered them, "Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, "Honor your father and mother." And he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, "Whoever comes to his father, whoever says to his father and mother, what prophet, whatever profit you might have received from me, is a gift to God." Then he need not honor his father and mother. Thus, you've made the commandment of God to no effect by your traditions. Hypocrites! Well, did Isaiah prophesy about you? saying, These people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching the as doctrines the commandments of men. So chapters 15 through 17, we're entering kind of a new section here of Matthew. We're coming off the end of Jesus' ministry. So this is the last part the, after roughly three years of teaching and gathering multitudes, these are kind of the last scenes of Jesus' ministries. He's had massive gatherings. Peter has walked on water. His disciples are worshiping him as the Messiah, as God himself. If you look at the book of John, this is really clear. But they have been convinced that they're dealing with God, not just a man. Um so in, in verse fourteen or chapter 14, verse 34, we see that we're back in the Galilean region. Uh, he's gone out into Gentile areas and the same results have happened in the Gentile areas. So both the Jews and the Gentiles have heard the word of God. Multitudes of people have experienced his power, his majesty, his teachings, uh, and heard the word of God straight from Jesus' mouth. Um, so here we are back in the Galilean area and the scribes and Pharisees that show up, notice they're, they are from Jerusalem. In other words, this is a delegation. It's not the local Galilean Pharisees that we dealt with uh, back in chapter 12. These are the 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 big guns of Jerusalem. They're here to to threaten Jesus. They're here to deal with this Jesus problem that they see it. And they're here to confront him because he's out teaching, from their opinion, he's out teaching a false Judaism. And this false Judaism needs to be dealt with. And they deal with it there. Back in chapter 12, um, the Pharisees from this region attacked him for the disciples doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath. They actually broke a piece of grain off and ate it while they were walking on the Sabbath. And they, they saw this as a problem. So here we're coming back to these. The critique of the Pharisees about Jesus was not that he sinned or that he broke God's word. It's that he broke the traditions of the elders as we see here. So Jesus is facing these top bosses from Jerusalem and their attack is virtually the same kind of attack that they got from the Pharisees early on in the ministry. But do see this as a, uh, uh, they're trying to question Jesus before the people to be a false prophet or to be a false teacher. And if they can identify that he's a false teacher, the consequence for that is death. This is an attack question because in verse 2 they, they accuse him of transgression. He, why do you? Why do your disciples transgress? So this accusation and transgression—what does it mean? Uh, one thought is, if boy, if this is all they got—that they didn't wash their hands—that um, it's kind of a evidence of how much Jesus kept the law, because this is of all the things in the Bible they could attack somebody with, they attack them about not washing their hands before they eat, right? So this is—it—it it, it is actually a testimony in part of how Jesus kept the law. Holiness is still defined by the law, but salvation is defined in Jesus. We are saved by Jesus. We can direct our lives around the law, but the law doesn't save us. It just makes us really aware when we fall short. So the tradition of the elders here is not Scripture. It's really, I think, important to understand in verse 2 when they say you transgress the tradition of elders. They never even accused Jesus of breaking the law of God, ever. So he has at this point, under all this scrutiny, and with people actively trying to find fault in him, they simply can't find fault in Jesus in in an actual sin. All they really have is that he's transgressing the word of the elders. So we need to know what that is. But it's important to note as we start the chapter that this entire chapter isn't necessarily about sin on Jesus' part. That's not the question here. It's, it's important to note that what we're talking about here is the transgression of these traditions. And Jesus, throughout his ministry, deals with sin one way. Sin is wrong, it's evil, you need to get rid of it, you need to stop doing it, don't do it anymore. But when it comes to these traditions, he deals with traditions really differently. They're opinions of people. Um, legalists typically get caught up in the gray areas of the scripture. These areas that aren't clearly defined. Because, frankly, I think a lot of the undefined areas are areas where God wants humans to use their creativity and to use their, their reason, and they need to do things in such a way that's appropriate to whatever culture they're in. But legalists then apply rules to those gray areas, and they start to think that those rules are at the same level of God's um, representation. When it says elders here, um, it could be that they're talking about themselves, But they're talking about this group of elders, and and traditionally this means those that have gone before them. So we're looking at 3,000 years of Jewish history. They're looking at the history of all the people that have led between when Moses gave the law and this day when they're talking to Jesus. So essentially, instead of owning what they think people should do for they think Jesus should wash his hands and his disciples, they're actually blaming the dead people that went before them. So literally these are rules of dead people that... They're keying on because the older a tradition gets, the more ingrained it gets with with its people. Why do they sprinkle water on people in, in Catholic Mass or, or, or various holidays? Nobody really knows, but sometime back, hundreds of years ago, they started doing that, and then it became a tradition. Well, you have to do that. You have to put a little piece of ash on your forehead and walk around for a day with it when it gets to be Lent season. Why do we do that? There's nothing in the Bible that says put ash on your forehead and walk around with it. Um, so... The idea that they're doing that is a tradition. And, and the other thing before we get into this, tradition isn't always a bad thing. But what they're doing here is they're elevating tradition to the point of God's Word. So if you want to, you know, baptize babies and com- commend them to the Lord, go for it. It's a great tradition. It's not biblical, but it's a tradition that you can have. There's nothing wrong with it. But when you start thinking that if you don't do that, that baby is going to burn in hell, then you're putting the idea of judgment on top of a human tradition, and that's absolutely what Jesus is dealing with right here. So why do we do this? Because their elders have done it, and that's it. That's their only justification. So they don't wash their hands. Uh, washing hands in Leviticus is about ritualism. There's, there's some hygiene aspects there, but that's not really what it's about. It's about going through like this huge sequence of actions that Pharisees would do at this point in Jewish history, prior to doing anything uh, holy or doing anything sacred. So in the last chapter, we just got done feeding, you know, 5,000 uh, men, but probably 15, 20,000 people. Um, and the disciples were handling food. So they were literally serving food, and it wasn't clear that they had washed their hands beforehand or even between each of the people they served, making it so it takes them more time to wash hands than it does to hand out food. So in... Well, here's the other thing. Because of this in the Bible, the Christian church hasn't put a lot of traditions in, around specifically washing hands, but it doesn't mean that the Christian church isn't given to these traditional things being elevated to above the scriptures themselves. Um, so in tradition-based churches, you have lots of these things, pl- praying the rosary, doing confession, um, uh, honoring the saints, uh, the elders so, you know, that have gone before. Um, And and those things become a set of routines and motions. And frankly, psychologically, it's really easy religion. Because if I just do these things, and, and even in an evangelical church, if I just show up to Sunday every week, that's going to save me. And that's not true. You're honoring God with your mouth and with your actions, which is good. And there's nothing wrong with that. But that's not what saves you. What saves you is your heart having more love for God than other things in this world. So we can sit and point at the Catholics because they have lots of these traditions and routines. But I think the point of this passage is that we look at how traditions and routines become things that blind us. Like saying the sun goes around the earth. People got put in jail for that when they started to challenge that idea in the Middle Ages. Because that's what our grandparents thought, then it must be what we think. And I think in the church today we do the same thing. Because in the 1960s, this is what we did that got a revival and the Jesus movement, that we have to do the same thing today. And that's a bad teaching. It's a teaching that because our parents did it this way, that's going to be how God moves next time. And the truth is God doesn't move the same way twice when it comes to revivals. And we've seen that for 2,000 years of Christian history. God does it different and he moves different. So what starts is, is something that's maybe good or a blessing, then becomes a superstition, which becomes a tradition, which turns into the kind of legalism we're reading about today. On the other side of legalism, you got permissiveness, which is churches that don't bother with God's rules or having any sort of rules whatsoever. Because you can react to legalism and say, we want a church where there's no rules, no judgment, nobody going around saying this is right and wrong, and Satan loves that too. But in this passage, we're dealing more with legalism which is a corruption of God's word, which makes it so that you got humans going around telling other humans how to live instead of humans going to their almighty God and the word of God and getting our lifestyle choices from the word. So the implicit addition that they make is a doubting that the word of God is sufficient for their life. That if we just live according to the word of God, that that's not good enough. So the people that go for these kinds of rules or superstitions are people that aren't getting the contentment or sufficiency from the word of God. It's not good enough. And God's told us how to live. I'll get into that in a little bit. But it's a twisting of God's word that you're not doing it the way we think you should do it. And this is dangerous in any context. We should also note this. Every legalist thinks that they're holy. Every single one that does this to other people thinks that what they're doing is advancing the kingdom of God. That's the danger of it. That's where Satan has got in and twisted these traditions. Traditions aren't always bad, but they're not neutral either. They can either be a blessing or they can be a curse. But they're not a neutral thing. And Jesus, doesn't, Jesus does things that are traditional or symbolic. He washes the disciples' feet. So he does a symbolic act that could easily be turned into tradition, but it never was. Because the act itself had a heart to it that made sense to the disciples. Right? And this, when traditions start to contradict God's word, we have, a, we have an obligation to respond to them the way Jesus did and to, to get rid of them. So, interestingly, Jesus never addresses the question of washing hands. Instead, he goes right at the Pharisees and he talks about their heart. So, <laughs> remember back in chapter 12 when he dealt with the Pharisees, he actually tried to give them a Bible study? He told them to, well, obviously you haven't read this thing in the Bible. And he points them at the Word. But at this point, there's no point in doing that. Because this delegation from Jerusalem has already made a decision about Jesus. And they've decided that they're better than the maker of the universe. That they know more than God does about how to live life. So at that point, a legalist isn't somebody where Jesus bickers with them about the tradition itself. So he then turns on them in verse 3 and says, why do you also transgress? The Greek parabono, a willful stepping out against the rules. They're choosing to break God's law. So at this time, as they step outside their boundaries, Jesus levels a direct accusation right back at them. This is not the friendly Jesus. This is not trying to negotiate or make the Pharisees feel welcome in his ministry. He's not making a space them for, so that they, they can grow with him. Why do you transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? He posits the two. Remember the Pharisees said the tradition of the elders? And Jesus uses similar language but replaces the word elders with God. Why do you break the law of God? So he's accusing them of something that should be considered much more holy than the tradition of the elders. So if it's a question, let's look at where tradition is can actually be sinful and that's what we're dealing with here today verse three and verse four we see that Jesus uses the words your traditions as though they're not Jesus's traditions which is okay you can have your traditions and I can have mine but when your traditions get you to break the word of God let's talk about you breaking the actual word of God that's the real transcription but Jesus says it multiple times for emphasis and repetition Verse 4, here's what he accuses him of. Honoring your father and mother. goes straight to Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. This is commandment number 5. Honor your mom and dad. So the Pharisees have to pull out this obscure, weird, um, ritualistic washing of hands thing that's expected. Jesus goes straight to commandment number 5. Nothing weird, nothing obscure. Um, the obedience stops, of course, in this idea of, when the tradition takes over. So Jesus looks at this question of honoring your father and your mother. Let's unpack that commandment just a little bit. He's talking to grown men. So when the idea that we honor our mother and father has little to do with children, in this case, Jesus is dealing with grown adults that are at the top of their profession, and he's claiming that they're breaking this particular law. In other words, the way Jesus reads honoring your father and mother, it's a lifetime commitment. Sorry to my kids. Um, but when the idea is that children are told throughout the scriptures to obey their parents, but adults are told in the fifth commandment to honor their parents. And those are different concepts. To obey your parents means you live in their household, you follow their rules. But to honor them has something to do with much, much later in life, which Jesus is going to unpack. But it's super clear in the word of God, there are no excuses for not honoring your father and mother into adulthood in, in this kind of way. In verse five, he he unpacks what in the in rabbinical tradition is called the korban, and the korban was a rule that the elders had made up that got that got the priesthood out of honoring their father and mother. Under the interpretation that honoring your father and mother was to take care of them in old age, so the parents would get old, they weren't able to do physical labor anymore. They don't have five hundred one k plans. They don't have retirement funds. They do not function like we they don't have elderly care centers that we put parents in today. So this idea of taking care of the elderly um, was a, a an expense to a household for people that weren't providing manual labor in return. In other words, you just take care of them. A lot like parents were obligated to take care of their children, which is an expense to parents for X number of years before children are able to produce any sort of physical labor. In this particular society, this was the retirement plan. You have lots of kids, so you have somebody to take care of This is why it was so tragic when a couple couldn't have kids, because that was their retirement that they weren't having born into their household. So it was kind of a big deal when that happened. So in verse 5, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift from God. So Jesus is putting words in their mouth, um, and, and this is how the Corban worked. The parents would say, we need some help, we need some money for food, and the Pharisees would say, I can't give you money for food because I have given that as a gift to God. Now, the trick with the Pharisees is when you give a gift to, to the to God, you're giving it to the temple. And the people that work at the temple are the priests. So they're basically taking whatever resources they have and giving it to themselves. And then they're calling it this super holy thing to do, that they've dedicated everything to God. But then they live off of what they just dedicated. So this is a non-biblical, non-Levitical rule. God didn't make this rule up. And then Jesus, notice in verse 5, also points out that the consequence of this is to be put to death. That if you don't take care of your elderly parents, you should be killed for that. This is is at, at the same level of murder because basically you're letting old people starve to death. This is really cruel behavior. So Jesus points out that, hey, we're not washing hands, which at best is a lack of holiness or purity but they're breaking the law of honoring their parents which is at best a death sentence so the law you're breaking has far worse consequences so you explain to me why you're breaking that law before i have to deal with washing of hands the word honoring there in the greek has to do with to estimate or to fix a value on something and when you're dealing with people that means to value or revere a person or thing as valuable even past the age of earthly value, that that person has a spiritual value to your home and God commands us to, to ascribe that worth to every human being. So without retirement, this is caring for these parents in these years uh, to fix a high value on your parents. There's some value to it. Remember the benefit of honoring your parents was that you would live a long life? Part of that, I think, is that God blesses those of us that respect people in their long life, that the natural just consequence for that is that you're going to get to be an old person too. And if it goes generation to generation, then you have much more wisdom in a household. You have the blessing of babysitters from your grandparents. Like those things have natural benefits too. Anyways, people can try to explain away any law of God any way they want. What's dangerous with this tradition of the elders is that they not only explain, explained it away, but when they all agree to explain it away together, then they then they can propose a better action, quote unquote, better action, than what the law actually says. So none of them want to take care of their parents. So there's greed at work here, and then they all decide on this law of Corbin together, and then if they're all doing it together, they can justify it together, and then they can get all indignant if somebody thinks that calls them inappropriate for well I'm giving everything to the Lord. I can't give it to my parents. All of it becomes false. My point being that the tradition of the elders for us today <clears throat> is when we run into these people that explain away very clear commands of God on how to behave and how to act. And they come up with all their reasons for why they do it, but at the end of the day, even if they've got other people that agree with them, Right, But i got a pastor that says we should do it this way. Who cares if you have a pastor? It should be compared against the Word of God. You have a bad pastor. That doesn't make it right. It means that both of you are wrong. Or as Jesus says later in the chapter, you're both blind. And that doesn't make one of you less right or wrong. It means you're both wrong. You're both false. So Jesus sums up priestly tradition in this way that they have made themselves exempt from caring for their parents. And, he, and the way he, he, he doesn't allow them to have a spiritual exemption from that law. He backs them off. And, 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 he, and, he, and he builds on this and then says the word hypocrites, right? So at this point, he's not really making a rational argument with them. He's saying, you've brought the law of God. He accuses them of it. He's right in saying so, because it's a commonly held cultural belief that priests don't have to take care of their parents. He's accusing the entire Jewish priesthood of a sin worthy of death, and he passes judgment. So the rationale here is that instead of donating things to God, that these, these people should have been caring for their parents. They shouldn't have explained away the fifth commandment. Superstitious legalism leads to a snare that can trap an entire culture of people. And that's what's happened to Judaism at this point in their history. They've fallen into this snare that what they're doing is right and they've all convinced themselves that that's the case. Birds of a feather flock together. You will, um, you will get into the same sin traps that your friend network does because people move in groups. Easter Island, if you know the history of this, mysterious island with all these big statues of weird-looking heads and long noses. <clears throat> and the whole island's full of these statues. And historically, the archaeologists have found they got bigger and bigger and bigger. So they started by making little statues. And then they made bigger and bigger and bigger statues. But there's no civilization on these islands. They starved to death. And there's evidence there that this entire society went to their death. And up to their final day, they were making more of these stupid statues. So instead of growing food, they dedicated more and more of their workforce to building these dumb statues. And that's what's happened to Judaism. Instead of actually feeding the people and shepherding the flock, And helping people to live healthy lifestyles and to be joyful and filled, they're so busy following all these rules, it's like Easter Island. The religion is dead. And Jesus shows up right at that time. He says, and and the word he uses there is to no effect. You have an empty or a dead religion. Your tradition chokes out the word of God. At the end of the day, you have a religion of no effect. It doesn't have any impact remember this is in, in the shadow of him feeding like 20,000 people, 15, 20,000 people. So Jesus is out a single guy doing a ministry that has massive effect of healing. And people are thinking, like John says, they wanted to take him by force and make him a king, right? What a good king. Whenever we want food, he just makes it. Whenever we're sick, he just he touches us and we're healed. This is a pretty good king. This, Jesus has a ministry of total effect. And you contrast that to the Pharisees. They have a ministry with no effect. All they do is put people in bondage. What happens when an entire church starts to think and convince each other that what they're doing is God's will when it's not? And the end of the day is God walks away. He rejects them. Because you rejected me, I reject you. And he lifts his hand of blessing from that, which means that's why it's so important that at the bare minimum, we're in the Word and we're doing more than just a verse a week. We have to be in the Word of God because it's what counteracts our human traditions. The have-tos that we build up for ourselves. So we get it direct from God and not from a person. And, this is, and I'll say this again. That's why you don't trust me with anything when it comes to biblical interpretation. This is just how I read the Scriptures. But you have to be in it reading it for yourself. And a lot of you, that's what you're doing when I tell stories you're not interested in. Like, I'll be teaching and I'll go on for four minutes, but your own brain is going through that line yourself. And you're thinking about it. And that's healthy. It's called Bible study. And it's why we do Bible study together, because in the same way a whole culture can be given to traditions, a whole culture of people can be given to the kingdom of God. And we help each it works the exact opposite direction. We build each other up, we edify each other in blessings of the Holy Spirit. We use the gifts of the spirits to bless one another. And we become a culture that is rooted in the word of God, directed by the Holy Spirit, and and it becomes the church or the bride of Christ. Okay, verse 7, the word hypocrites. We've already come across this word. It's been used before. In the Greek, it means an actor. So he calls them all a bunch of actors. That word has a lot more negative connotation today because Jesus used it this way. And he uses it as the accusation for somebody who says one thing and they do another. Right? An actor can say lines, and it's not who they are. And that's what the Pharisees are doing. They're going out. They love the fact that everybody sees them as holy, and they love the fact that they don't have to do a lot of manual labor. So they live off of that. And Jesus calls them fake. They're false teachers. false. And remember, he's talking to this delegation from Jerusalem. These are the big shots. And he's calling them and their entire priesthood that follows this tradition He's calling them empty, fake teachers. This is something that Peter won't get his head around until well after the resurrection. After the resurrection, God has to convince him with a set of dreams that it's okay to go and give the word of God to Gentiles. Because Peter's so locked into the tradition. A good Jewish person growing up in a good Jewish synagogue, you revere these people from Jerusalem. You hold they are holy. Part of the whole myth is that the people have lifted these people up as holy. So this is why the disciples are going to struggle with this whole interaction. Like, yeah, well, we'll get into that too. Verse 8, these people draw near me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching the, as doctrines the commandments of men. Doctrines being God's word, the commandments of men being the traditions of the elders. I want to dig into this again because this idea that we can say things and do things and our heart cannot be with God means we actually are looking at ourselves because God's told the wheat and the tares to grow up together. We're not here to look at each other, but we do want to look at ourselves. Are we going through life in a routine where we're not serving our king? Are we living our life under a set of traditions? This is the way we did it a month ago. This is the way I did it a year ago. This is the way I've always done it, and you don't you stop thinking about deliberately giving your best to God Almighty. Isaiah twenty nine thirteen is the he's he's Jesus is quoting Isaiah twenty nine thirteen here. These people draw near me with their mouth, they honor me with their lips. In that passage, Isaiah is condemning the Jewish priesthood for having closed eyes. He's calling them blind, and when, so. It's an interesting verse that Jesus pulls out here because he's only referencing a verse, but the whole chapter is like a mirror of Matthew uh, chap- whatever chapter one 15. It's like a total mirror of it. Only at the beginning of the chapter, Isaiah talks about blindness, and in Matthew chapter 15, it's at the end of the chapter. He talks about blindness. So if you take the the messages of Isaiah um, 29, it's worth flipping your book to look at it, and flip it, it topically comes up in reverse order in Matthew 15, like a mirror image of Isaiah 29. I was going to get into a lot. One of the reactions we get when Jesus calls them hypocrites, is, well, if we're going to be like Jesus, then we should be calling people hypocrites. And that's a, a dangerous place to be, because A, because God's the God of the universe, and they're attacking him and his disciples as the head of God, what God's doing on earth, and Jesus comes at it with perfect knowledge of the heart, which we don't have. And we do not see the disciples running around calling everybody hypocrites. So n- not only do we not see that modeled in the disciples, um, we're not doing it as a church either, because... Jesus has already taught them not to judge. But there's a difference between judging something and being judgmental about something. Does that make sense? When we look at God's word and say, God's word, honor your father and mother, that's actually not being judgmental because we're not making up the, the judgmentalism. That's what legalists do. It's what the, the tradition of the elders has done to the Pharisees. They're being judgmental of Jesus But when Jesus turns around, points at the word of God and clearly shows where they're breaking it, he judges them and he makes a conclusion that they're in contradiction to the word of God. And and in that, we can reflect Jesus. It's not that we run around calling people hypocrites, but we do look around and we discern things against the word of God. And when you have people that are in direct contrast to that, we have to address it. Later in Matthew, we're going to be shown how to do that where we go to somebody one on one, we go to them with the with with other believers, then we bring it to the entire community, but that idea of going to somebody directly and privately to talk about something that you see in their life that's contrary to the word of God is absolutely biblical. But that's not judging someone, that's showing the word of God to someone so they can judge for themselves where their heart is at. Judgmentalism, however, is this very public attack that the Pharisees make on Jesus. So because it's a public attack, he publicly shows them where they're breaking the word of God, which Jesus knew prior to when he woke up this morning. So when he's saying these things, he's bringing this judgment largely because the the Pharisees made it a public situation. So the hypocrites in chapter 6 were an abstracted group of people. But here in chapter 15, the hypocrites are named as the Pharisees. You are hypocrites because you're doing one thing and your heart is in another place. And Jesus knows darn well what comes after Isaiah 29, 13. And I think the Pharisees would too, these most educated of people coming from Jerusalem. They would know what's in that chapter. And I just want to read a piece of this, because this is what's going on. As he says, they draw near me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He's quoting a passage that's accusing the Jewish priesthood of being wrong. <laughs> and in vain they worship me. Where Isaiah says, you have, there's vanity in what you're doing. So when he, when in the Old Testament it says vanity and Jesus says hypocrisy, he's va- virtually talking about the same thing. So Jesus is referencing and calling up images from chapter 29 in Isaiah. Listen to this chapter 29, 14 is what comes immediately after what Jesus quoted. Therefore, here's the consequence of that situation. Behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent shall be hidden. Woe to those who seek to hide their counsel far from the Lord, and their works are in the dark. And they say, Who sees us and who knows us? Surely you have things turned around. It's interesting that Matthew turns the chapter around when it comes to what he's doing. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? For shall the thing made say of him who made it, He did not make me? Or shall the thing formed of him who formed it, has, He has no understanding. So Jesus is quoting a chapter that speaks of or implies, especially for the wisdom of the wise, shall perish. Speaks to the end of the priesthood. A vanity in the priesthood that's not worth following anymore. So clearly Jesus has done great works. There is a wonder, a wise wisdom has gone out. Um, and and we're now at the end of messianic, or a Mos- uh, Levitical Judaism is about to come to an end. And, and that's what Isaiah is talking about. Like there is a point where the priesthood is acting in vain and they're not doing anything that God wants to see because they think that the evil in their hearts is actually hidden from God and it's not. And they think that the clay or the, The pots are calling the potter wrong. And that's what they're doing with this. So he puts the elders, or they put the elders on the same level as God with their accusation. The Pharisees are saying that Jesus, the potter himself, doesn't understand what God wants. Essentially, Jesus coming back with this chapter, he's saying, I'm done with you as a priesthood. Last time he encountered the Pharisees, he took their whole congregation. Remember? He went in, healed somebody, and they all followed Jesus. The Pharisees are left there without a congregation. But at this point, he's taking away their titles. And he's stripping them of what they have. When he calls them hypocrites, he's not calling them priests anymore. He's giving them a new name. It works in both directions, right? Peter gets a better name. A lot of people in the Bible get better names. But the Pharisees get a worse name. Their new name is hypocrite. It's easy to enjoy the appearance of being holy. It's a huge temptation for Christians. We like being holy. It's a good thing to be pure. But when we start taking pride in our purity that we didn't make, then we're starting to say that we're somehow better than the potter who made us. And that's a dangerous situation, but it's also common. It's a cheap comfort, a cheap religion where you can just check off boxes and call yourself good. But, and then go do everything the world wants you to do and follow after everything the world puts in front of you. God wants your heart. It's not just the image of a heart. It's the actual heart. That he wants you to love him, love time with him, love the worship of him, love the church, love prayer, love fellowship, love church barbecues more than you love the entertainment of the world. That's a tough balance to strike. It's not a balance that you strike. It's a wholehearted decision to follow God over what the world has made. So teaching doctrines as the commandment of men. Jesus nails it succinctly like God often does. This is exactly what they were doing. And Isaiah points out the heart behind it. At the end of the day, they're not serving the Lord. They're serving themselves. Jesus never says the traditions are bad. He never, by the way, he never says washing your hands is a bad thing. And that Like this could be an argument to just never wash your hands before you eat. He never says that. But he does say that you're elevating these things above the commandments of God. And that's what's wrong with it. In verse 9, in vain they worship me. Entire groups can do this in vain. And that's just a tragedy. Jesus is pointing out and, and he just got done teaching about the tares and the wheat. God's got this harvest field called the world and there's bad and good plants growing up in that field and they look identical until harvest time. So he lets them grow up together. He has a season where he allows that to happen. The season of the Pharisees just ended. Teaching doctrines as the commandments of men. We have to keep this in focus. These, he's, They're teaching things that aren't in God's word even though um, they think they're doing the right thing. When he called the multitude to himself, he said, hear and understand, verse 10. Verse 11, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a man. So Jesus turns away from the Pharisees and he teaches the people directly. This is the end of the, Levitical leadership in the church and this is exactly where that happens in giving them a new title accusing them of breaking the law he, he doesn't go actively create this campaign to kill them which is God's punishment for breaking commandment 5 but he makes the, the accusation he points it out he names what they are and there is a spiritual death that's the conclusion of this as he turns away from them When he called the multitude to himself, he said, hear and understand, not what goes into the mouth defiles man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles man. So the principle here is to contrast worrying about physical hands, because you might get germs in your mouth, for spiritual purity and, and mixing those things up. Specifically in regards to food, you're not more or less holy based on how you prepare for your food. Or... In this part, in verse 10 specifically, this sets up all Christians abandoning kosher law around food, which were these traditions around what you eat and how you eat and how you do this. So when you read verse 11, read, oh, this is why Christians don't go follow kosher law when it comes to eating. That said, should we consider Levitical rules for how to eat food or not eat food? Sure, there's nothing wrong with those things. But when we elevate those things to think that how we eat food makes us more or less holy, we're absolutely off track. In fact, fasting is a behavior that, that could be seen as an act of holiness that's not eating at all. So it, it clearly isn't about what goes into your body physically, it's what comes out of your mouth, which is a spiritual production. So he's doing more than just name calling here. He accuses them of the breaking of the law. He judges them. He references a chapter that talks about the end of the priesthood. And 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 huh. I'll keep going in Isaiah. I'm gonna pick up th- it's not just that the priesthood dies. This chapter in Isaiah also talks about the beginning of joy. There's something new that's gonna be born out of that. Isaiah um, same chapter. What chapter were we in Isaiah twenty. 29, verse 17, It is not yet a very little while till Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field be esteemed as a forest. And in that day the deaf shall hear the words of the book, and the bl- eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness, and the humble also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Sounds a lot like Jesus' ministry, Right. And remember when John the Baptist's disciples came and Jesus sent them back saying, the deaf can hear and the, and the blind can see? Like there's a number of these kinds of references where what he's telling John the Baptist's disciples is, no, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one bringing the new fruit to the field. And this is the same chapter he just quoted. And then he says to the multitude, hear and understand, which is exactly related to the the deaf shall hear and the blind shall see. Hear and understand. And so he's, he's, he's taking this Isaiah chapter and he's fulfilling it right before their eyes and they can't see it. The break in the tradition of the elders is the moment where Jesus breaks with Judaism. And the first thing he does is he, he cuts off this kosher rule set that had hundreds of rules about food. The, the Pharisees got really carried away with food laws. Maybe because food is one of the greatest blessings God's created on this planet for us. That he wanted to just drown it with legal, with rules and, and, and choke it off. Jesus intentionally points out their hypocrisy as a response to their tradition-based accusation. Then verse 12 comes. Then his disciples came and said to him, Do you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And it's like, yeah, I think Jesus knows what he's doing. I think Matthew had to like unpack this later, right? Because they maybe hadn't uh, memorized Isaiah. So when he, you know, this is a setup and it shows us how the disciples really thought that these Pharisees were their allies. But if we're going to do the kingdom of God together, we got to get all different like kingdom of God people together so we can fight the Romans, and they the disciples still think the Romans are their primary enemy. That what Jesus is all about is to overthrow the oppressive rule of Rome, and they really still need to figure this out. The next verse is, you know, don't you um, don't you understand? Um, Jesus has still has some work to do with the disciples to get them to see that the kingdom of God is not about this. This is what's really interesting to me is how many communities are trying to gather all the different. Uh, churches in town to do have like a common message, and it's it's an interesting thing. Why don't you just let the churches follow the Lord the way that they read in the Word to follow the Lord? Is it a horrible thing that there's multiple denominations? But this universalist tradition waters down people following the Lord for themselves, that they're going to get affirmation from other pastors on how to be a pastor. That's an interesting phenomena, but it says the Protestant Church might be hitting this era of tradition taking over and choking off the word of god going straight to the word for what it says and living accordingly so i think jesus knew that he was antagonizing the religious elites but the disciples think that he should be working with them you know it's like when a college scout shows up to a football game when you're in high school and you think oh i got to impress these people and and that's for good reason those people have the keys to the football kingdom and they can or whatever sport you're looking at those are the people that can give you a scholarship to college where you can continue to play your sport at the next level. The Pharisees do not have the keys to the kingdom. And the disciples think they do. They think that you have to have the alliance of the, of the, of the temple if we're going to conquer Rome because everybody follows the temple. We're all good Jewish kids. So if you got them on your, the wrong side, you're going you're to ruin your army. We need these people to do what we're trying to do. Again, false thinking around this. Who do you need to do God's work? God. God plus you is what you need. Right? You need fellowship in the church is about encouraging and building and and doing it. But it's not the same thing as going into the word for yourself. They're very different aspects of our life. So Jesus knows that fighting Rome is of this world. It's of this kingdom. And he doesn't need to stroke the ego of the pompous Jews. That's another kingdom that's not God's kingdom. Right? And, and that's the problem with tradition, legal, superstitious legalism leads to this thought that our kingdom is the one that matters. And God's kingdom is the only one that matters. Jesus spends zero time in his ministry fighting Rome. Zero. Closest we get is when they come up with the money and are like, should we pay taxes? Because he had that little to do with Rome. He just didn't care. Right? And and you look at how the Kingdoms of this world are so tempting for us because they say that if you're not passionate about this, you're not a good person. And instead of getting our identity from God, we get our identity from those people that tell us what we should be doing. Both political parties do this. A number of churches do this. And it, and it's a dangerous thing because the spiritual war we have is a kingdom war. It's not about the conflict with the kingdoms of this world and the little territories that people have built up in this world. It honestly is. Those things are 100% hypocritical. They're actors on a stage. But our spiritual war is a kingdom war that we need to fight. So Jesus turns, verse 13, but he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father has not planted will be uprooted. Let him alone. They're the blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind leads the blind, they both fall into a ditch. Any question about our allegiance to the kingdoms of this world just got dealt with very simply. It's not our job to be, A, yelling hypocrites, that's Jesus' job, and it's not our job to to unbuckle the kingdoms of this world. We don't have to fight Rome, and we don't have to fight the the Pharisees. It's not our job. I always, I'll say to Steph, like when there's a false church, it's like, well, how do these false churches get a thousand people that go there? Because that's the way of this world. If I can just show up and leave and then go do whatever I want for six days a week, that's a pretty good deal. I get to feel holy without actually working towards or making any sacrifices to be holy. It's a great trade-off. But if one day those thousand people woke up in the morning and said, Lord, do you want me to go to church here? and the Holy Spirit could honestly move on their heart, I believe that pastor would be in front of a stage with nobody in the audience. In one one week, it could happen instantly. And that's what happened to the Pharisees last time they encountered Jesus, is they found that they had nobody left in their synagogue because the Holy Spirit can move like that. <coughs> Excuse me. So Jesus talks about the plants not being planted. He's alluding to his um, parable of the tares and the wheat Verse 15, then Peter answers and says to him, explain this parable to us. So Jesus said, are you also still without understanding? You just walked on the water, Peter. You just still not get what I'm saying? It's not that Jesus doesn't love Peter. He loves Peter. He adores Peter. But does Peter get what he's saying? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and it's eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies, all those other commandments, right? These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands, that does not defile a man. Back in Matthew 13, he he talked about... um, Jesus said, but he said, nay, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let them grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I'll say to the reapers, gather together first the tares, bind them in bundles and burn them, and then gather the wheat into my barn. That's exactly what Jesus is doing right now. He's showing the Pharisees to be a bundle of tares that have no business leading God's people. They're blind. That said, there's still going to be blind people to follow them. So he points back to this parable. He references it. He says, let them alone in verse 14. Clear instruction for the church that it's not our job to call another. It's not our job to try to dissemble a false church. The, the Holy Spirit will do that all on its own. Our job is to meet and worship together as God's told us to, uh, regardless of how many people show up. They're established religious elites of the first century there's established religious elites of the 21st century. It hasn't changed. The Holy Spirit then is going to move amongst God's people, and God's people need to focus on the positive and not try to deal with the negative. So these synagogue leaders are going to find that the churches take over. And, and even today, Judaism is much, much smaller than Christianity. Like they just find that they got a bunch of empty synagogues. That is what happens without any attack movement, without any picket signs, without any protests. Nobody needed to sit outside their synagogues and protest Judaism. In fact, Paul went into the synagogues and taught from the Word of God and people just started going with him to hear the Word of God when they kicked him out. Leave him alone. Here's another theme that comes from Let Them Alone. It's not a bad thing to let dead ministries actually die. Christians sometimes have a tendency tendency to hold on to ministries that don't have any life in them. And we cling to them because at one point they did have life and they blessed us. But then we think we have to do it, right? So we just, we'll, we'll often do this. We'll have an idea and we'll say, oh yeah, let's see if it works. And then we see that it, God's not moving with anybody on it. And it's really, I think, One of the things I'm really proud of as a fellowship is we let the idea go. We say God's not in it, we let it go. It's okay for us to leave things alone, not only in the sense of not attacking them, but also in the sense of not propping them up when they're a dead church. right? When you're looking around your church and the only people you have in your room are above 80 years old and you're struggling to attract new people, it might be that all of your 80-year-olds need to go attend a church that's got a living ministry in it. And actually has multiple generations showing up. So there is a time in which Jesus's followers aren't obligated to prop up traditions and we're not obligated to fight traditions either. It's not our job. He bl- the blind leads the blind and both of them fall into a ditch. Some people read this as that means they're going to hell. A ditch can I don't God knows the word hell. He or Jesus uses that word. He chooses not to use that word here. Traditions aren't necessarily sending us to hell, but they can make us stumble. A ditch is a lower area on either side of a a path or a walkway. What you're doing is you're falling off the road. And that ultimately can be something that has damnation attached to it. But it's a lot more likely that you're just going to be unblessed. You're falling out of God's path and you're falling out of his will. And you're just looking around and you're tripping up on things all the time. And when it comes to the spiritual life, it's not moving forward because you're not even on the road. So if a ministry isn't rooted in God's Word, it becomes dead, they just don't know it yet. It starts to trip up on itself. just doesn't know it yet. The leaders have a responsibility to teach God's Word or they fall into a ditch. But followers have a responsibility to decide who they follow. And that's equally a ditch that they can fall into. So again, with this blind leading the bind, Jesus is tapping an image from that same chapter in Isaiah. Isaiah 29, verse 9. Pause and wonder. Blind yourselves and be blind. So he's absolutely pulling from Isaiah 29 with, with what he's teaching in this chapter. They are drunk but not with wine. They stagger but not with intoxicating drink. For the They fall into a ditch. For the Lord has poured out on you, with wine they stagger or the poured out on you with the spirit of deep sleep, and he's closed your eyes, namely the prophets, and he's covered your heads and the seers, and the whole vision has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one who is literate, saying, Read this, please. And he says, I can't, for it's sealed. Jesus knows the key to understanding the Word of God itself. The Pharisees are these folks that he's talking about. The disciples can read Isaiah 29 after Jesus' teaching, and we can read that and go, oh, I see exactly what God's doing there. It's not a confusing passage. But for the Pharisees, they are actually not able to understand some things that are in the Word. I, For the sake of just fully geeking out on this idea, let's try this out. If we are believers, we should be able to hear a verse in the Old Testament that was absolutely confounding to the, the Jewish people. Like, these are verses the Jewish just... People really don't unpack very well. And they got to do some huge theological dances to get these things to make sense. So in terms of messianic uh, prophecy, Psalm 1610. I'm going to read this verse. This Prior to Jesus, imagine you don't know the whole story of Jesus. This is a super confusing verse. For you, the Messiah, will not leave my soul. You, God, will not leave my soul in Sheol, hell. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. That's a really confusing sentence. That the Messiah will not be left in hell. Like, so he's going to hell? Like, that's a really weird verse. for. Or in Zechariah Zechariah chapter 9, the Messiah is going to ride on a donkey. That's an odd verse to throw in there. Or Zechariah 12.10, he's going to be pierced. Like, he's going to be pierced as unto death. He's going to be killed. These are odd passages. Jeremiah 31.34. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. For pre-Jesus, the Levitical priesthood was the the thing between. So God's saying like every human being is going to know God like the priests know God? This is a really confusing sentence for judaism psalm 22 psalm 118 try in in your bible study time just take a glance at isaiah 52 to 53 and imagine how confusing that would be prior to jesus or isaiah 7 or you know uh, psalm 2 7 that both imply the messiah would be born of a virgin that it would be god's son that would be the messiah those are like really confusing verses in the old testament Without knowing Jesus, you're blind to what the Word of God says. It's like a book that's been sealed or locked up. And even though you know how to read, you read the words, but they don't make any sense. Like Daniel 9 saying that there's an actual day that the Messiah will come into Jerusalem. That's an odd chapter if you're a a Pharisee, a rabbi, a scribe. That's a a tough thing to unpack if you don't believe in Jesus. Not only that, that day is within the next year when Jesus is teaching this to them. Like Messiah is going to show up and they're attacking Messiah. Or this one, Jeremiah... um, Oh no, I I already did that one. Jeremiah 31, 34. I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. How can a person forgive? Would be what the rabbis would ask about that. It's another Old Testament passage they would have had a tough time with. Wait a second this messiah person and this is in jeremiah this is a prophet writing that every man is brother saying they shall know the lord for they all know me from the least to the greatest says lord for i will forgive their iniquity and i will and their sin i'll remember no more how can god forget sin when there's no sacrifice involved there's supposed to be a sacrifice before god forgets the sin it burns up so what like There's a blindness from the Jewish perspective as they don't understand how this is going to work, that the sacrificial system is going to end and there's going to be a day where each person just knows God for himself or herself, that that's coming. It was promised in the Old Testament, but they're absolutely blind to what it's saying. So in verse 15, when Peter says, explain this parable to us, it appears that Peter's confused about the washing of hands and how this all works, Um, but this is a... Peter would have grown up not understanding those verses. This is worldview shattering for the disciples, including the Pharisees. Everyone listening would be like, what is going on here? So even though Peter just got done walking on water, he, he trusts that the Lord is the Messiah, he doesn't understand that the Messiah is a suffer. He's going to suffer and die, and that that's part of this plan. So Peter has a hard time thinking that the, the Jewish priesthood is not part of God's plans anymore. That's a tough thing to get your head around. But Jesus wants them to see because this is really important. So Jesus says, verse 16, Are you also still without understanding? Also being, Are you like these Pharisees? Do you really not get what I'm doing here? And he explains it with common sense. So (laughs) he asks why, and Jesus explains it with very direct, common sense language. Don't you understand that when you put into your mouth goes into your stomach and it's eliminated? The word for eliminated there is affidrone. Uh, it's a slang term to be to cast something into the toilet. It, it's kind of a vulgar word that he's using. It would be equivalent for us of poop or worse. But so don't you understand that what you eat gets pooped? Like that, it's a very blunt sentence that Jesus gives him. I was going to name this teaching spiritual poop, but Steph said I couldn't name it, that that was just not appropriate. And she's probably right. Um, but it, he's basically saying, don't you get that food's physical? It's not spiritual? You eat it, you poop it. And, and so he's compounding this, this idea that there's a separation that's a natural process. Don't you get that when you put food into you, it goes through your stomach and comes out? So there's this idea that what is physical... Has a physical process to get stuff out of our lives. If you eat something that's bad, it gets pulled out of your system and it gets out of your life, and it's a natural process. But don't you get that there's a spiritual diet too? That what goes into you, that there's a spiritual way to get things out of you, and that is your mouth. It comes out your mouth. <laughs> Spiritually speaking, it generates in and it comes out there. But it's like pooping, right? There's an unclean thing that comes out of people's mouths when they have an unclean heart, and it's just how it works. So we separate unto holiness in a spiritual way the same way we do with the physical. We have sin in our heart. We need to get rid of it, and it's the confession of our mouth not only that accuses us of ill thinking and Ill, an and ill heart, honor your father and mother, that's actually not being judged. But it's also how we get rid of our sin. We confess it to the Lord God Almighty. We get it out of our system and we dismiss it from it. If if Matthew 18, later on, Matthew's going to make this point. If if your hand and your foot cause you to sin, you cut it off and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands and two feet than to be cast into everlasting fire. There has to be a spiritual way to get sin out of your life, to dismiss it. We don't snuggle with our spiritual poop. We don't make it, get at home with it. We get rid of it. So, in verse eighteen: the things which proceed out of the mouth. People tend to say what they think. It's why our words are, our, our tongues are so important. Proverbs four twenty three: keep your heart with diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. <laughs> this is how it works. And then Jesus kind of walks through a really short kind of list of the the commandments. Really. Evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. It's an interesting summary and a reinforcement of the Ten Commandments, including the honoring of parents, which he just he talked about. But evil is still evil. Defilement is defilement. You get it out of your system. It's about the heart. And there has to be a way to do that. So we don't come to Bible study every week and think that that tradition saves us. It doesn't. And if you come to Bible study every week and you're just going to go home and sin and you're not even fighting to get that out of your system, you're a hypocrite. You're saying one thing with your your with your mouth, but it's indicative of just how untrue that is. And there's so when you say you're good but you're not, that's a lie and that's an evil coming out of your mouth. For murder, like the act of murder, yes, it's evil, but Jesus has already taught the thought of not liking somebody, you're calling them a nasty name, just that thought in and of itself is evil coming out of your system. And it's going to grow and it's going to, and you're going to see that a bad tree bears bad fruit. Another lesson Jesus has already taught. So verse 8, these people draw near to me with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Where is your heart? That's the question Jesus keeps putting it at. Do you love the Lord God Almighty or do you have something else that you love more? anything outside the heart of God can be something that pulls you away from God. And in the end, it has no fruit. It's vanity. Verse 20. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. Like, I love how Jesus just makes it super simple. Like, we're not going to worry about what these Pharisees are worried about. And and at the end of the day, he can pronounce that A, because he's God, uh, but B, because it makes sense. It's just common sense. What would be the equivalent expectations? And I'm not going to answer this question. I'm just putting it out there. What are some of the equivalent expectations that are put on believers today that follow that format? To be good, you must do this. And I think to some degree, this is a really tough question because we absorb those things that we think make us good and we do the things that we think make us good. But in the end, we, that's not serving the Lord. That's following a tradition which isn't necessarily bad. But then we put it on other people and it becomes legalism. To be a good person, you must do this. Everybody that's a believer must do this. Everyone that follows Jesus, if you're not doing this, you're not really following Jesus. That structure is a really subtle tool of the enemy to take the spiritual life out of people's fellowships, out of their church and out of their community and out of their heart. Because if we do things out of obligation, we're not doing them out of joy. And when God has us do things out of joy, we love doing it. So what's that thing? You have to do this. One must love God. One must love God. One must obey His Word. And those are the things God asks of us. Everything else is the tradition of the elders. And that's a really tough thing because then you feel like you're almost like out there without safety gear. And that's the truth. That's called faith. That I'm going to move forward in life because I know and I love my God and I'm doing these things He's asked me to do. The longest meditation on this, if you want another Bible study, is Psalm 119. It's the longest psalm in the the Bible. It's, It's a huge meditation and it's all about how to change your heart. So this is just a passage from Psalm 119. Really asking this question in verse 9. How can a young man cleanse his way? This applies to young women too. And David answers it. How do you cleanse? How do you become someone who's following the Lord with a pure heart? And this is a guy who God gave the title, A Man After His Own Heart. And here's what it says. Psalm 119 verse 9. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I've sought you. O, oh, let me not wander from your commandments. For your word I've hidden in my heart, that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I've declared all the judgments of your mouth. Contrast that with what comes out of the mouth for these Pharisees, right? What comes out of the holy person's mouth is God's judgments. I've rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. You see how central the word of God is? If we don't commit ourselves to being in the word, we have nothing to counteract the desires of this world and the sins of this world. Let's be completely clear about God. what God does ask of us. So if it's not washing hands before dinner, which is not a bad thing by itself. But if that's not what makes us holy, then what is it that makes us holy? Uh, on the wall behind me, Micah 6.8, He has shown you, O man, what is good, what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. That is what God has asked you to do. What's Jesus' version of the Shema? Matthew 22, it's coming up in, in, in verse 37. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, Verse 39, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So God doesn't just say don't follow the tradition of the elders. He replaces it with going right back to the word of God and what the word of God says. Clearly running about with your own rules for holiness is in contrast to loving the commands God's already given us. This is an interesting phenomena when you just have people that are moving forward day after day, um, doing their own thing. But sadly, the modern church has fallen into that. It's routine. It's thoughtless. It's without the word. and, And it gets into a rut. It falls into a ditch where it just becomes week after week after week of being in the ditch, not moving fast, not moving down the road, no Holy Spirit. An empty, hypocritical religion that gets rejected and it's empty and it's vain. And it doesn't do any good God desires a lifetime of a humble love between you and God, and that is sufficient. You don't need to do anything else. And this is tough because some people feel this guilt like, well, I should be sweeping at church. I should be stacking chairs at the end of a church service. I should be leading Sunday school. I should be in the worship team. I should be in the prayer ministry. I should be, I should be, I should be. And that becomes a burden to new believers, and it's a, it's a trap to veteran believers There's nothing you have to do outside of joyfully serving the Lord where you want to because he's put something in your spirit that's holy and good and it's pure and it's true and it is sufficient. So to think that this is sufficient and to be content with what God's given, that is holiness and nothing goes beyond that. Not only are you not obligated to serve, you don't have to because God has forgiven you and you're entirely forgiven and sufficient from the first moment. Don't get stuck in a rut. 2 Corinthians 3.5 Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency comes from God. It seems a kind of blindness to think that if we do things, we're going to be more holy and that God wants us to do all those things instead of waiting for God to actually have us do things. Opportunity is often God's way to put things in front of you, but it is a terrifying situation when you're just going through the motions in something and it isn't spirit-led because it's a hazard to the church and the enemy uses it. This is a thick topic to get into. It's a tough topic. It's one worth talking about because what God's asking for each Christian to do, each follower of Jesus, is to discern for themselves what God has called them to do. Wow. You mean I can't just follow a to do list? I can't just go out and, you know, do these four things and I'm saved? Virtually every human made religion has a list of things you got to do. This is the only religion where there's no got to other than to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul and love your neighbor as yourself. That's it, that's the core. It's also blindness then for us to feel shame and guilt and self hate. Because we're not loving the Lord if we don't trust that he's forgiven us. We can't love our neighbor if we don't live in the, in the rede- redeemed identity of God Almighty. So it's blindness to think we're unclean when God has already made us clean, right? So God has then made from, <laughs> God has taken us out of the spiritual sin, the spiritual poop, and he's turned us into something holy and wonderful in humility and in justice and in grace. By his blood he has saved us and he's made us clean.